0: The months of March and April mean that high school and college students can put down their books for a week and head on out for spring break vacation for some fun in the sun with friends. Dozens of cities in Florida, Texas, and Southern California open up their sunny shores to young people and even those who are young at heart. These revelers fill their days with beach activities and binge drinking, but sad to say not everyone has a great time and in the worst cases, some never get to return home. Here are five spring break murder mysteries. Number five, Susan Jocks. Spring break is a time when people cut loose and throw all caution to the wind. Susan Jocks and nine of her high school friends arrived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, all primed to play and party. Weeks after, however, Everyone returned home except Susan, and this is her tragic story. It all began on Easter of April 1986 when Jocks and her nine friends bid their goodbyes to their folks in Trumbull, Connecticut, headed for their destination, Florida. Like everyone headed down there, they were looking for some fun, and this they did get, but towards the end of their spring break, something unpleasant happened. As stated in the reports, the high school senior left the hotel room during the night. The girl's friends heard her plans of going for a walk alone on the beach, probably just unwind. However, others believe she might have been meeting with other spring breakers at another motel. This would be the last time that Susan was seen alive because after three days, police found her floating lifeless in a canal about 35 miles away from where they had stayed. Unfortunately, the victim's body was already in a rapidly decomposing state, hindering medical examiners in determining the cause of her death. The investigation followed, but the sparse evidence made it hard to link any suspect to her disappearance and murder. They did question several individuals who checked out of their motels around the same time the crime happened, but each was let go due to lack of apparent evidence that could actually link them to the case. Police also couldn't find any motive to the crime, considering that she was found still wearing her expensive jewelry. Moreover, experts couldn't ascertain if she was actually sexually assaulted. Despite the urging of authorities, no witnesses have come forward, local law enforcement said that their best hope of solving Susan's death would be a confession from the perpetrator. Almost 40 years have gone by, and No one has come forward yet to admit the crime. Perhaps in time they will, or this may just remain another mystery. Number 4. Cliff Hibbert Jr. and Kenneth Patterson The world was an oyster for the young man named Cliff Hibbert Jr., academically inclined and an overachiever to boot, but unfortunately... Cliff never got to accomplish what he wanted. This story all began on March 27th of 2008. Hibbert was in his hometown in Santa Monica, California. The 22 had just arrived there from California State University in Northridge, where he studied and was about to complete his degree in business law. With months to go before his graduation, the young man couldn't be more excited to take his well-deserved spring break And so on that night, Cliff told his mom he'd be going out with a friend named Kenneth Patterson, as well as two others. He said his goodbye, which, unknowingly, turned out to be his last. Him and his companions then got inside one of their friend's brand new BMWs. The young men then drove to an apartment complex at the 4200 block of Figueroa Street in South L.A., Wasn't really known if the Quartet knew for a fact that this neighborhood was infamous for illegal drug trade as well as gang-related violence at the time. Regardless, though, they went on with their plans. Two of them dropped off Hibbert and Patterson and drove around the corner to park the car. It was already past midnight when all of a sudden multiple gunshots tore through the silence of the night. Police were called and respondents said that they found the lawyer-to-be and his partner with shots in the head. They were pronounced dead at the scene. An investigation was conducted, but all authorities could say was that Hibbert and Patterson could have been victims of a robbery-related homicide. Despite their initial findings, they could never bring in a single suspect into the crime. No evidence was found, there was no surveillance videos, no fingerprints or even a witness who came forward. Local authorities said potential witnesses might have held themselves back for fears of retaliation. A $75,000 bounty was put up for any information that could lead to an arrest, but so far, 12 years have passed, and the reward remains unclaimed. Meanwhile, families, loved ones, and friends were left with a harrowing thought over who could have ended the lives of these two innocent and promising young men. Number three, Sarah Ottens. While most of the cases we feature in this episode points to individuals going to spring breaks, Sarah Ottens' story is entirely different. The outcome, though, was similarly tragic. Ottens, A native of Morrison, Illinois, went to the University of Iowa to pursue her dream of becoming a nurse. Sweet, attractive, and funny, the 20-year-old was most of all an achiever in her class. She also was a dedicated family woman, so much so that in March of 1973, she decided not to join her friends on their spring break trip to Florida. Instead, she took up some waitressing gig at a nearby cafe, at the University Hospital School, where she also worked as a part-time nurse trainee. She also planned to visit her family back in Illinois later on that week. However, something tragic happened. Just before midnight on March 13th of 1973, the aspiring healthcare giver was found dead in room 429 of Reno Hall, a co-ed dormitory inside the university. When responders arrived, they saw the young woman lying partially naked on the floor under a clean bed sheet with her own clothes strewn around the room. An odd revealed she died of suffocation, judging from the severely swollen neck as well as injuries. Upon further inspection, they also found marks suggesting she was brutally struck on the face and chest with a broom that was found lying nearby. Interestingly, police said that the attacker had washed the victim's face and hair, which then left bloody water in the room's sink. Even more intriguing was the fact that authorities couldn't confirm if Otten was sexually assaulted or not. The initial investigation turned devoid void of any leads as to who could have been the perpetrator. However, towards the summer's end of that year, a grand jury was able to determine the supposed culprit, and that was James Wendell. The 20-year-old was a part-time University of Iowa student from Toledo, Ohio. He was a former football player for the school and was living in a dorm across where Otten's body was found. Prosecution brought forth hair evidence, which, according to the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation, belonged to the victim and was found stuck on Wendell's shoes. A bloody fingerprint was also seen on a faucet inside the murder room, and upon checking It was confirmed to belong to Wendell. With this information in hand, the ex-Varsity student was found guilty of second-degree murder and then sentenced to 50 years in prison in 1974. Appeals followed right after the decision. The defense claimed that there was a mystery man seen with Ottens on the day of the incident who was not African-American. Allegations of racial profiling were also raised, indicating that the convicted was found guilty before a trial had even begun. The appeal was ignored for almost a decade, that is, until 1983 when the Supreme Court overturned the decision. Wendell was then released from jail after having served seven years. And now, no one else has been charged with the crime since then. 1993, however, the former inmate was convicted of assaulting a woman in Iowa. Otten's murder, though, remains an open case. Authorities are now hoping that new forensic technology could help shed new light on the DNA evidence recovered from the scene. Perhaps then, they'll finally be able to know who actually did it. Number 2. Kim Vaccaro and Lisa Iceman. The thing about being young is you always yearn for thrill and excitement, sometimes even at the expense of safety. University students Kim Vaccaro and Lisa Iceman were no different, but unlike those who survived and lived to tell the tale of their exploits, these two didn't. The girls, both 20 years old, were roommates at the State University College in Buffalo, New York. Picaro, who hailed from Poughkeepsie, was studying to be a social worker. Iceman, on the other hand, was majoring in special education. In March of 1985, the two young women decided to take their spring break down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. But unlike the others, who would prefer to do the usual, the pair planned on going on vacation by hitchhiking there. To the stakes, the friends didn't even think of informing their families about this plan, They did, however, tell a couple of friends. With no one to stop them, Kim and Lisa finally departed on March 29th. They were last seen climbing into a tractor-trailer truck on the first leg of their long journey to Fort Lauderdale. On March 30th, they sent a postcard that had been mailed from a town near the Virginia border to a common friend. This would be the only time, and apparently the last, that the two were ever heard from again. Just a couple days later, on April 2nd, the two hitchhikers were found dead in the Hillsborough River, northeast of Tampa. At that time, this area northeast of Tampa was still undeveloped. It was so remote, the only thing to see there was the river itself and some thick woods. Both victims were found floating in the river by a local fisherman. According to the police report, Iceman's body was the first to be spotted, She was found clad with only her shirt on. About 300 yards away, they also pulled out Vaccaro's body, which was also clothed in just a shirt. The medical examiners confirmed that the women had been in the water for almost two days. This made it impossible for them to determine if they were sexually assaulted or not. Authorities did say that the party-goers had been slain by heavy blows to their head. As to the motive of the killing, though, Police said it could have been robbery, considering that their possessions, including cash, were missing. Parents of both victims were stricken with grief over the news. It was then found out that Iceman did tell her family she'd be going to Florida, but on a bus and not hitchhiking. Her father, in an interview, even revealed how many times he warned his daughter not to hitchhike. To this day, though, no one knows who murdered these two university students. Their tragic story, however, now serves as a cautionary tale about listening to the words of our parents. Number 1. Dana Bailey Those from Pennsylvania may be aware of the place that's lovingly called the Happy Valley. This name was given to the region surrounding Penn State University in the 1930s. The term dates back to the Great Depression when the town was able to shelter itself from the financial hardships falling on the rest of the country. However, nothing could shield this place from the horrors of crimes supposedly committed by one of its people. In March of 1987, most of the students living in the surrounding apartments and condominiums have been away to enjoy their spring break. However, there were those who chose to remain, and one of them was Dana Bailey. A Phillipsburg native, the 21-year-old was already in her senior year studying health planning and administration. She was alone in her one-bedroom apartment above Crabtress Jewelers at 132 South Allen Street. Right across her place was an abandoned apartment that had been undergoing some remodeling. Unbeknownst to the college student, a man was in that building watching her every move. One day, the stalker crept down and walked across the rooftop of the adjacent building. The path leads to Dana's apartment. The unknown individual then propped open the woman's kitchen window and crawled inside. Once in there, he stealthily grabbed a knife from the occupant's kitchen. Catching her off guard, the prowler grabbed Dana and tied her up before putting on a blindfold. He then reportedly sexually assaulted the victim. During the ordeal, the attacker got so enraged that he stabbed Dana with the knife. After the deed was done, the mysterious assailant propped the student's body in a provocative pose, then left the scene, returned to his place, and from there, ogled at the dead person through his window. It was on March 5th when Shirley Bailey, the mother of the deceased, decided to visit her daughter and nothing could have prepared her for the horrific scene that waited for her. She found her child in such a sorry state that it would take years before she could recover from the trauma. Police determined that the victim had died of stab wounds on her chest. Nothing of substantial value like money or jewelry was taken from the apartment. This led investigators to rule out robbery as a motive. The incident had been classified at the time as sex-related or lust murder. The state college police and even local law enforcement failed to develop enough evidence though or information to help them find the culprit. As such, the suspect or suspects of the dreadful crime remained unidentified and at large. The people of Happy Valley were consequently disturbed and alarmed over this incident. Despite the heightened security inside and outside of the campus, the students, most especially, were worried about their safety. With few leads and information, the case technically went cold. There had been a couple of tips that surfaced over the years, but nothing could really be substantiated. With it going on 40 years and still being unsolved, the death of Dana Bailey is still being discussed by faculty and students at Penn State. Will it ever be solved someday? No one knows. Perhaps the latest forensic technology could help shed light on the mysterious brutal murder case, but only time will tell. Hey guys, that's gonna do it for this week's episode. Remember, if you're craving more true crime podcasts, then you gotta check out every town. Over there I host more in-depth stories for you guys to check out. And it's the craziest stuff from all around the country. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it, and I'll see you in the next one.